Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thank you for tuning in. Hello everyone. Fantastic to have you with me. So I've been thinking quite hard about how to approach today's episode. It wasn't as easy as, as I thought it would be. That's um, partly because when I'm looking at this narrative and looking at Napoleon, it's very tempting to just jump forward as quickly as possible to Waterloo because that is the natural climax of the story. It seems to be the point everyone is moving towards as if it was an inevitability. But it really wasn't. I I hope that we are coming to see through these episodes that the way events turned out was very much dependent on circumstances that were in flux at the time. Now, what I'm going to talk to you about today is two battles, the Battle of Quatre Bras and the Battle of Ligny. Odds are, unless you are a huge Napoleonic history buff, you won't have heard of either of these battles. But in their way, they were as crucial to European history as Waterloo. These two battles are why Waterloo happened. And I find it fascinating because I'm not giving you blow-by-blow accounts of battles. That's not what I'm trying to do with these podcasts. What I'm trying to do is show when and where these things happened and why. Why are these battles important? But also, what I really find fascinating when we look at military history is the impact on the people and how it was a product of the culture and technology of the time. And these two battles, if you just looked at them in the sort of big sweep of history, they aren't what you would consider militarily innovative or exciting or different they're very much what what you would call almost average, routine, if there is such a thing, uh, run-of-the-mill conflicts. They're not like something like Cannae, where Hannibal Barker uh, destroyed the Romans uh, with innovative tactics and clever manoeuvres and clear and clever psychological manipulation of his enemies. They're not militarily innovative, like um, the first use of gunpowder or cannon or the first shock of the encounter between the West and the Mongols. They're not like that. And in a way, it's very tempting to sort of just gloss over them. You know, let, let's get past them. Let's get to Waterloo. Come on, deal with the real meat of the, of the campaign. We want to hear about Wellington and Napoleon. But these two battles and the effects they had are the cause of Waterloo. And I really want to have a think today as you're listening to this episode, of the actual people involved. Because when a historian or a podcaster or an enthusiast just writes a battle off and says, well, there we go, it happened, off we go, we're missing the actual impact that this had on the people at the time, on how they felt, on how they responded to the situation. Now, I think that's sort of a a general ramble on why I'm going to spend an episode on two battles that sound fairly obscure to you. So let's push on, and I hope as we go through, you'll see just why actually we should know about these. So we're at a critical point in the campaign. Men had marched with heavy loads and sore feet. Military boots of the period didn't come fitted for left or right. They were both the same and had to be broken in. Some soldiers' feet 
was so swollen by the end of a march that boots had to be cut off or left on, with the attendant risks of trench foot and infections. A large number of soldiers were already dead or wounded, along with the horses and animals. Civilians across the conflict area affected would have fled, or if not, they would have hidden their valuables as best as they could from the inevitable looting that would always accompany armies, whether friendly armies or not. A few, very brave and enterprising folk, would perhaps stay and try and turn a profit by selling everyday items to the troops at vastly inflated prices. Think about how that actually impacted the civilians. There was no social security or disaster relief fund, no international aid agencies or United Nations to help. Unlike today's disaster zones, where mechanised transport of some kind is usually available to help with evacuations or make repairs, in 1815 it was muscle power, sweat and maybe horses that were used to rebuild. Imagine having to scoop up your children and leave your home because an army is marching through. Are they friendly? Even if they are, is it safe to remain? Friendly armies might confiscate your food, requisition your horses, maybe even conscript your children or force you to act as a guide. Leave the decision too long though and you might not have time to flee and friends or foes aren't always easy to identify at a distance. But where do you go? Do you flee to a nearby city? Risk being trapped there, penniless and perhaps under siege resented by the locals or do you try to head to the wider countryside perhaps to starve or die of exposure or disease robbers will prey on the weak and the isolated cavalry from the various armies might chase you or you might be mistaken for a spy and hung even if you did avoid the armies you might return to your home to find it a burnt out shell with no insurance or government programs to assist you no banks or savings account to draw on, no real organised charities, the loss of a house or a farm due to a stray foraging party being careless with a torch, or perhaps having it reduced to rubble by a battle, could leave you destitute. Again, you might be forced to flee to a city or hope neighbours can help. Starvation and death were real possibilities. This is the horrific dilemma that was being faced across Europe in 1815 as the continent prepared itself for a war that it thought was over. All across Belgium, people had to decide to stay, to run, to fight the French or to oppose them, or somehow wait long enough to know which way to jump. All French men and women had had to ask themselves what sane man or woman would want another war. And yet, and yet, the fat French king had replaced the great old soldiers and heroes of France with preening boys in his royal guard. The hated Austrians had worked with the Prussians and occupied Paris. The ancient regime had returned. And now, and now the emperor was back to right the wrongs. Many French people wondered how any true Frenchman not march at this hour with the returned veterans the iron-hard men who had fought at Austerlitz and Borodino. Yet even France was not at peace, with rebellions sparking across the country, and some of the best marshals like Suchet tied down on the frontiers. Perhaps the new soldiers noticed the sergeant had lost half his fingers in the cold of Russia. Maybe they thought, surely today, after beating the Prussians yesterday, surely the marshal Ney 
would crush the hated British, those cold-hearted moneylenders who paid Germans and Austrians to kill Frenchmen so they could sit back in safety and steal French lands. Wasn't this what they had joined for? To march under Lougard? Marshal Ney himself, that brave winner of battles, fiercest of the marshals, with great victories to his name. If most people have heard of Marshal Ney at all, it is probably only as a blunderer at Waterloo. I'm going to give him a fair bit of criticism here too, so I want to give a picture of the man before we get into detail. It isn't fair to reduce a historical person's life to just one brief snapshot and then heavily criticise them. I can't cover everyone the podcast mentions, of course, but I can at least try to give you a background on some of the key players. If you wanted to find an example of a real-life d'Artagnan of the Three Musketeers, you could certainly pick a worse role model than Ney. He was born in a working-class family, the son of a barrel-maker, on a French-German border. After getting bored of civilian life, he joined the army. Because pre-revolutionary France would only allow aristocrats to be officers, he had to join the cavalry as a private soldier. He showed immense talent and bravery, rising to sergeant and then officer in the post-revolutionary army. He was periodically wounded and led various cavalry charges. He rose to the rank of general and was one of the first founding marshals. He commanded a corps successfully decisively winning battles like Enschlingen and being instrumental at Jena. He also even managed some successes in Spain, including a clever rearguard action against the Duke of Wellington, despite being heavily outnumbered. But his fiery temper led to clashes with the other marshals and his dismissal from command. His shining hour came in the disastrous Russian campaign. Here he was instrumental in holding the battered and frozen rear guard together. His courage became legend. He shouldered a musket with his troops in the bitterest cold under Russian artillery fire and cavalry charges by savage Cossacks. Bearded, frost-covered and unbroken, he was separated from the army and thought lost, only to emerge from the snows like a hero from a novel. Here's a quote from Napoleon's marshals describing it. Quote, he was the last man to cross the Nyman at Kovna and reached German soil. General Dumas, one of the officers of the general staff, relates how he was resting at an inn in Gumbinnen when one evening a man entered, clad in a long brown cloak, wearing a long beard, his face blackened with powder, his whiskers half burnt by the fire, but his eyes sparkling with brilliant luster. Well, here I am at last, he said. What, General Dumas, do you not know me? No, who are you? I am the rear guard of the Grand Army, Marshal Ney. I have fired the last musket on the bridge of Kovno. I have thrown into the Nyman the last of our arms, and I have walked hither, as you see, across the forests. End quote. In the difficult year of 1813, he led at least five desperate infantry charges with conscript troops, but his overall strategic movements were erratic and poor. He was almost as famous in the army as Napoleon. He was loved by the men. 
the bravest of the brave. The picture that emerges is of a clever, aggressive, difficult man. One who could be tactically brilliant in action, but sometimes haphazard and not at his best in an independent command. His later career displayed elements of a strange indecisiveness, and some commentators have suggested he might have suffered from PTSD. Being always in the heart of the action under fire for years at a time would certainly be enough to trigger it. In a strange way, he was like Marshal Blucher, a born fighter, loved by the men. He needed a brilliant and detail-oriented chief of staff to ensure that the basics were covered. He was simple in his tastes, hating society with plain manners and difficulty reading. He was the very image of a bluff, blunt, plain soldier. If, like me, you are a Bernard Cornwall fan, then he was very much like Sharp himself. His wife was, by contrast, a high-spirited society lady, pushing him to be more ambitious and outgoing. In our last episode, we left the Army of the North on the evening of the 15th, after its beginning of invasion of Belgium and its initial actions against the Prussians. Now, as dawn broke on the 16th of June 1815, near Quatre Bras, the fiery, aggressive Marshal Ney seemed curiously quiet. The Marshal spent the morning half-heartedly massing some elements of his 1st and 2nd Corps, plus conducting a lazy reconnaissance. Here, though, was the moment for him to change history. The crossroads at Quatre Bras were still lightly held by the Anglo-Allied army. Napoleon marched to crush the Prussians. I want to emphasise again that right now, at this point of the campaign, Napoleon was on cracking form. He had performed the 19th century equivalent of a blitzkrieg. The daring, the speed and success of his opening moves were astonishing. An early assault now by Ney would push the British and their allies back, and perhaps, if he moved fast enough, he would not only have captured the crossroads at Quatre Bras, but the vital road to Neville's that linked the British and Prussians. Perhaps he could even have caught the scattered elements of the British army as it marched to Quatre Bras. If this had happened, then it is possible the British would have suffered a military catastrophe on a scale equal to Dunkirk or worse. The loss of a number of advanced divisions, followed by the destruction of the Prussians, would have left the British almost defenceless. The annihilation of the main British field army in Europe that would have followed, under their best commander, would probably have destroyed the British government, wrecked the British army for a decade, and cut the finances off from the coalition. Napoleon's defeat of the Prussians would probably have knocked them out of the war, secured Belgium, instilled an inferiority complex of no mean order in the Allies, and reminded them that the master of war had returned, and it would have made him politically supreme in France. With that in mind, there would have been no Waterloo. Napoleon would have succeeded. The gamble would have worked. So it is no exaggeration to say that Marshal Ney's actions were crucial and had been the subject of intense scrutiny. What is certain is that orders from Napoleon were received by Ney by around 10.30. Allowing for the imprecise nature of timekeeping and recording, of course, please remember that timings given might sound precise, but they aren't. 
it is unlikely that officers' watches would have been in strict synchronicity with each other. Here is Napoleon's order to Ney, quote, There, according to circumstances, I shall decide on my course, perhaps at three in the afternoon, perhaps this evening. My intention is that immediately after I have made up my mind, you'll be ready to march on Brussels. I will support you with the guard, which will be at Flores or Sombreff. I shall expect you to arrive at Brussels tomorrow morning. You will march this evening if I make up my mind early enough for you to be informed of it today and to accomplish the three or four leagues this evening and to be at Brussels at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. You should dispose your troops in the following manner. The first division at two leagues in advance of Quatre Bras, there is no hindrance, six divisions at about Quatre Bras, and one division at Marbay, end quote. Similar orders were sent from Marshal Soult to Marshal Ney and must have been received shortly after Napoleon's orders as Ney replied to Soult at about 1100 hours. Also, don't forget, when I'm reading these orders, you are hearing an English translation of the order that was originally written in French and you are hearing it with a 21st century mindset, absent the context and subtext that would probably have been clear to someone in 1815. Certainly it seems that Ney didn't appear to see any problems with Napoleon's order. He replied to Salt, saying, quote, All information to hand tends to show that there are around 3,000 hostile infantry at Quatre Bras and very few cavalry. I think that the Emperor's arrangements for the advance on Brussels will be carried out without great difficulty. End quote. What seemed really poor of Ney was that it was only after receiving the Emperor's orders that he began drafting orders to get General Réal moving. The key thing to remember about all of this is that Marshal Ney was a senior Marshal of France, a tier only below the Emperor himself. A man in this position had to demonstrate leadership, courage, initiative, high-level organisational skills, tactical and strategic abilities of the first rank and the rare ability to identify the pivotal moment and seize it and Ney had certainly had a long and amazing career as a marshal. Sometime in the morning, a more urgent order was sent from Napoleon via Salt to Ney. It read, quote, Monsieur Le Marchal, an officer of the Lancers, has just informed the Emperor that the enemy has appeared in force near Quatre Bras. Concentrate the courts of Counts Raoul and Darlion and that of Count Velmy, who is just marching to join you. With these forces, you must engage and destroy all enemy forces that present themselves. Blücher was at Namur yesterday, and it is unlikely that he has sent any troops towards Quatre Bras. Thus, you will only have to deal with the forces coming from Brussels. Marshal Rouchy is moving on some breath, as I informed you, and the Emperor is going to flow us. You should address future reports to His Majesty there. End quote. Napoleon left for Fleurus at about 1000 hours, so this order was probably with Ney by around 11.30 to 12.30. This order was clear and unequivocal. The enemy at Quatre Bras was to be engaged and destroyed. No military commander of Ney's level can really sit on their hands and wait on events in a situation like this. Ney had to be ready to act, organised and able to do whatever was required. He knew that he had an enemy of some kind to his front, 
and that his emperor was seeking the Prussians, and that he had to be ready to be in Brussels the next day. He had orders to have his troops at Quatre Bras, occupying it, and by midday he had been told of Napoleon's plans for the day, which even included Napoleon's accurate prediction of the arrival of Allied reinforcements from Brussels during the day, even if Ney thought the enemy didn't have many troops there, or that they would swiftly retreat, he should have been moving to carry out his mission. He should have already had his troops ready to carry out these orders. First light was at 0400, so he had plenty of time to be up at 0530 if he was resting the troops, and have them moving by 0900 hours. Then he would have had his two corps up in position, just south of Quatre Bras, by the time he received the first order from Napoleon. He would have been able to make an overwhelming attack at Quatre Bras at 11.30, if he didn't act on the first order. The first real Allied reinforcements wouldn't have arrived until 1500 hours, so the Allies would have been cut off from each other. At 1400, Ney had 18,000 troops available to him, against the Anglo-Allied force of 7,000. But only 4,000 French were actually put into action. Ney certainly sent orders to his corps commanders, General Raoul and Arléon, but neither of these officers displayed much sense of urgency. They delayed and muddled their marches somewhat. Ney seemed content to let things drift, and Raoul also waited for orders before even getting his spread-out troops concentrated, ready to move in almost a mirror of his commander's slack behaviour. By 0800, the troops Raoul commanded were up and armed, ready to go. The orders to move weren't given. Darlion was badly held up in marching his troops, because they were stuck behind Raoul's. Worse, Raoul decided to delay his move further, ignoring Ney's eventual order to move, because he was worried about enemy troops on his flank. This was idiotic. Any small Prussian units on his flank were for the army centre or army right to deal with as they moved. This was a fact that should have been obvious to a senior general like Raoul. So here, at a crucial point in the campaign, a campaign that the fate of France rested on, apathy and delay reigned. Now, that is a fairly conventional narrative that I've given you. It is worth briefly pointing out that some historians have a very different view on this. I'm conscious that there is always dispute between historians on almost any topic. The alternative view is that Ney was justified in waiting for Napoleon's orders and that Napoleon was waiting on changing events as the day developed. This alternative view seems much more dependent on the if there is no hindrance phrase in Napoleon's order and the idea that Ney was justified in waiting for more positive orders before committing to a major engagement. This doesn't seem to be the majority consensus amongst historians, and it also appears somewhat undermined by the later orders as well, to be honest, but I thought I should at least throw it out there. By 12.30, though, Ney had a good force to take Quatre Bras, but didn't actually fully start the battle until 1400, when he finally launched an assault. So for hours in the morning... Ney could have sent three divisions against a single, weak, poorly supplied Dutch division that was bravely holding the crossroads. Indeed, at the start of the action at 1400, Marshal Ney had 10,000 men and 30 guns and 2,000 cavalry 
and an emergency reserve of 2,400 guard cavalry, facing only 8,000 infantry, with only 10 rounds of ammunition and 16 guns. The lack of action had not escaped Napoleon's notice. Cannon fire can be heard for miles, and the absence of sounds of cannon fire from Ney's direction told the Emperor that the attack hadn't started. At 1300, he penned a furious note to Ney. Quote, Monsieur le Prince de la Moscova, I am surprised at your great delay in executing my orders. There is no more time to waste. Attack everything in front of you. With the greatest impetuosity. The fate of France is in your hands. End quote. The delay until 1400 hours gave the Allies hours to repair their situation. Wellington had had time to reach the Prussians, to talk to Blücher, and learn that the Prussians intended to stand their ground and fight. While slightly critical of their deployment in the open, he nevertheless agreed that they would fight. He returned to Quatre Bras, find that despite all the delays, Ney was putting the position under immense pressure. Worryingly, Ney had received reinforcements of three of Kellerman's finest cavalry brigades, but he stationed them five kilometres back and then forgot about them. In all, Ney had around 40,000 men under his command, but his failures to get them up, moving and in position early meant he was fighting with far, far fewer. Allied reinforcements had already started to arrive at 1500, just before Wellington himself. The situation was desperate for the British though. Ney's delay had robbed him of an easy victory, but the British force and the Allied Dutch troops were close to cracking. Wellington even ended up nearly getting cut down by French cavalry at one point. But his arrival had stabilised the situation, with fresh troops arriving on the Allied side. Wellington knew it was in the balance, saying in reflection on the battle, quote, By God, if I had come up five minutes later, the battle was lost. End quote. It was on a knife edge, and included moments of epic bravery on both sides. But Allied troops kept arriving to support the beleaguered defenders. The French cavalry nearly shattered the British and Dutch, but heroic efforts kept the defenders together. Then, as Ney prepared a hammer blow for the British centre, at 15.30, reinforcements arrived, spearheaded by the 95th Rifles. I'm sure the Sharp fans out there can picture him arriving on the battlefield in the nick of time, at a critical moment. What made the battle especially difficult for the French was that British were experts at concealing troops in terrain and suddenly leaping out to deliver punishing volleys at close range. Ney was becoming frustrated, but still seemed to be in a strong position after early gains. He was now ready for his main assault. Three regiments of British infantry, the 1st Royals, the 32nd Cornwall, and the 79th Cameron Highlanders, were viciously engaged with General Baclou's division, but eventually pushed the French back. According to some of my sources, this appeared to cause the French to be more cautious in their attacks, just at a time when vigorous assaults were needed. My sources also suggest that the French were mentally put on the back foot by being reminded of the constant defeats at the hands of Wellington in Spain. I'm not sure how much weight to put on these opinions. Without a lot of first-hand evidence, it is easy to project onto people in the past. How many of Ney's men had actually fought in Spain, for instance? A far simpler explanation is that the French weren't well coordinated. They had delayed and they suffered for it. It doesn't require complex psychology to see that troops suffering heavy casualties in an assault 
against a much smaller force might be a bit battered and more cautious. The French assaults were a fair way ahead of their supporting artillery. Backloo's division were pushed back to their start position by a British counter-assault. The British, who followed the retreating French, then came under intense French artillery fire as the French fell back and into range of their supporting artillery. Skirmishing between the lines was vicious in the extreme, and the rifles on the British left were eventually pushed back by French skirmishers. The Namur Road was now occupied by the French, and the Allied flank was exposed. The French had hardly any troops there, but the British rifles were the only thing holding Wellington's flank and preventing the French rolling it up. Okay, I'll make a really short explanation of flanking. The flank is basically the side of a military unit or position. Imagine a line or two of a hundred men standing shoulder to shoulder. It is hard to break through that line when you run at it, with them all shooting you. But if you can come round the side, suddenly instead of facing a hundred men, you are only facing one or two on the end of the line. You can push through them and cause chaos, rolling them up like a Venetian blind. Regiments and even armies would sometimes attempt to flank the enemy to get round the sides or the rear and shatter them. It required coordination and timing. You had to pin the enemy in place with a small force in front whilst you moved your troops around to the sides. You needed to have reserves ready to exploit the chaos you caused and you could be very vulnerable to counter-attack as you moved. Facing this pressure, at around 1630, some hard-pressed Brunswick regiments attempted to withdraw to a stronger position, but were broken by French lancers. The Duke of Brunswick was killed. The chaos spread, and the 42nd Highland Regiment mistook French cavalry for friendly Brunswick cavalry. They didn't form square quickly enough to defend themselves. Hundreds of men in the light company were ridden down and sabred and lanced, by the French cavalry of the 6th Lancers. All in all, the 42nd Highlanders lost 284 men in minutes. The fortunes of war could be savage. But the French cavalry alone couldn't take the crossroads, and despite the odd disaster, the Allies formed squares, beat off the enemy horsemen. The Allies were hurting though, and the men were aware that this was a hard-fought affair. Meanwhile, Napoleon had been hammering the Prussians at Ligny. He had them pinned down under intense artillery fire. It was a brutal battle. The Prussians had declined Wellington's advice to deploy on the reverse of a slope to shelter them from the French artillery. They suffered for it. The battle swung between the two sides, but the French began to gain the upper hand. Napoleon had carefully managed his Imperial Guard reserves, and after brutal fighting, he was positioned to launch them at the desperately weakened Prussian centre. He scented an opportunity to exploit the victory and turn it into an annihilation of the Prussians. He had formed the idea that he could by afternoon expect the victorious Ney to swing his troops around from Quatre Bras and catch the Prussians in the flank and the rear. To assist him, the Emperor sent an order to General Darlion to change direction from going to support Ney at Quatre Bras and march to aid the Emperor at Ligny instead. Darlion had been badly delayed already, but was finally getting to the point where he could have arrived at Quatre Bras to support Ney. His arrival, at around 1600, would probably have tipped the balance decisively in Ney's favour. Ney was waiting anxiously for him. The Allied reinforcements had stopped Ney's great assault, and the crisis of the Allies of 1500 hours had stabilised. But if Darleon and his 20,000 men arrived, nothing could have stopped Ney. 
When Ney learned that the emperor had redirected Darleon, he was furious and countermanded the order. Darleon duly swung his march from Ney to Napoleon and then back towards Ney, an almost inexcusable blunder. If French reinforcements had arrived on the Prussian flank, it is likely that Napoleon would have broken them and trapped them between two French forces. He would then have won a stunning victory and would have been free to swing the entire Armée du Nord straight into Wellington. Yet Ney's order robbed him of this chance. And so, Ney's fit of temper meant that Darleon had walked between two battles for no purpose, without firing a shot. Finally, in a last desperate effort and a foreshadowing of Waterloo, Ney ordered his heavy cavalry to seize the Quatre Bar crossroads. By now he was virtually raving, saying, quote, Ah, those English bulls, I wish they were in my belly. End quote. Ney sent for Gouton's cuirassier brigade in one last attempt to win. The heavy cavalry charged, but without any support and without horse artillery. The 69th foot fired a volley at 30 paces. The British square was charged by the 8th cuirassiers, and astonishingly, the British square was broken. Cuirassier Henry, with the help of Marshal des Logis Massiette, jumped to the ground and picked up the king's colour of the 2nd Battalion of the 69th South Lincolnshire from the arms of Ensign Clark, who had been hacked down by 23 sabre cuts. For this, Cuirassier Henry received the Légion d'Honneur. But despite the desperate bravery of the late cavalry charge, they couldn't hold the crossroads and were driven back. By the end of the day, Ney had blundered his way to losing a battle that was handed to him on a plate. He had delayed for no purpose, lost sight of his troops and muddled his command. His former fiery aggression and ability to know how to time an assault seemed to have deserted him. The mix-up with Darleon had certainly cost him the chance for victory, but frankly he should have seized it earlier without needing Darleon. His interference with the Emperor's order to Darleon meant that the opportunity to utterly annihilate the Prussians was lost. In the end, Darleon and his corps spent a day marching from place to place and missing all of the fighting. Certainly, Ney had fought a hard battle. He had inflicted higher casualties on the enemy than he had suffered, and he was able to take Quatre Bar on the 17th of June, when the British began to withdraw. But while some historians have called this a victory, which it is if you just compare the numbers killed, overall, it was a strategic defeat. Now, as the sun set, the campaign was all but decided. Napoleon had won his last great victory at Ligny, but he had all but lost the campaign. The last great gamble of the emperor was almost over. All through the night, exhausted, hungry and wounded men tried to rest and recover. The worst wasn't close to over though. The survivors would now have to face the hell that was Waterloo. But before we close this episode, we need to deal with the missing day between Quatre Bras, Ligny and Waterloo. Exhausted, hungry men and women would have collapsed into sleep that night. The next day broke with pleasant weather. The Allies had been mauled badly. Blücher had been badly injured in the final hours of Ligny, with his horse rolling on him, and was barely able to escape the battlefield. By 0900 hours, Wellington received messages telling him about the near disaster of Ligny. Now was the time for the British to retreat. Otherwise, they would be cut off from the already retreating Prussians. Here was a last chance for the French. The Prussians in retreat, and the British army having to pull back alone and unsupported. Yet again, though, Ney seemed lethargic. Napoleon 
toured the battlefield of Ligny, assessing it, talking to the wounded and reorganising his troops. Napoleon always loved touring the wounded after a battle, feeling it was important to him and them. Messages finally crawled in from Marshal Ney, informing Napoleon of all the events at Quatre Bras the day before. The Emperor finally arrived at the realisation of what was actually going on. His enemies were in retreat, whilst his marshal sat on his hands again, but with swift action, the enemy could still be at his mercy. Napoleon moved for Quatre Bras, and his first words on meeting Ney were the vicious, You have ruined France! Napoleon began to drive his army hard in pursuit, and Marshal Grouchy was dispatched with 30,000 troops to chase the Prussians. But now happens one of those strange, intangible and unexpected events in history. A random occurrence that no one at the time could have predicted, but which changed things irrevocably. Throughout the morning, the weather had got hotter and heavier. Men, tired from marching and fighting, removed greatcoats and stripped down to thin shirts. They rolled up sleeves and abandoned excess baggage in the extreme heat. Suddenly, though, as the French cavalry began their intense pursuit, storm clouds gathered and darkened. The British cannon covering the retreat opened fire, and as they did so, the storm broke with fury. Temperatures plummeted, and the open fields were quickly turned into mud baths. Horses that tried to move off the roads into the open fields quickly sank. Pursuit slowed to a crawl as the roads became clogged. Muskets misfired, and the cold rain made the hot sweat freeze the bodies of the men and horses. Gradually, the Anglo-Allied force struggled to the ridge at Mont-Saint-Jean, later known as Waterloo. This was the last obstacle between the French and Brussels. The gloom of night gathered, but tired men could find almost no food or shelter. Officers paid inflated prices, even for looted chairs, to avoid sleeping in the mud. Uniform colours dissolved as the dyes ran out of them. Rifle green became mud-soaked black, whilst the bright red coats of the line regiments typically turned a washed-out brown scarlet. Many men hadn't eaten for days, but a lucky few acquired food from various sources. Luckier still were those men who found a sheltered sleeping spot. Most simply sunk in the mud, finding it eventually to become, if not comfortable, at least soft for the night. Unluckiest of all were those cavalry units sent out on picket duty. The Merc made this job difficult and pointless. They were tired and their horses exhausted, and it left them exposed to the elements on top of horses, but not allowed to sleep in the saddle. Horse artillerymen would sleep on their limbers if they could, and generals ousted people from farmhouses to get shelter for the night. Exhausted gunners, who had been in action all day, dragging their guns through Thick mud sank down for rest. Finally, orders ceased, and men took what rest, comfort and shelter they could as the rain raged on through the night of misery. Not that the French had things any better, as they halted on the ridge at La Belle Alliance, opposite the Anglo-Allied force. Even the vaunted Imperial Guard suffered, though not to the same degree as the line troops. Napoleon was said to have raged at the wasted time and even wanted to make an early assault on the Allied force as his army arrived at La Belle Alliance. But he was dissuaded by his generals, who argued the hour was too late. And so passed the night, brutal, cold and wet, with only the promise of more battle on the next day. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. These battles are not well known, as I said, 
But what I find fascinating here is not just the military actions, it is the hints of the psychology at work underneath. Why did clever, experienced soldiers make such terrible mistakes? These people weren't stupid. They weren't incompetent. They hadn't been promoted beyond their capabilities. They had experience of what they were doing. What went so wrong? Was it just the normal confusion of war? Missed messages? Differing viewpoints? Or was it more? Was there PTSD? Were many of the generals too old, too set in their ways, too unsure of the cause they were fighting for? Did the pressure of command lead to a myopic focus on the wrong things? Was it all just inevitable? Things always go wrong in war. And Ney was never a man who was good as an independent commander. There's an old expression, the reasons you get into trouble are the reasons you don't get out. So perhaps putting Ney in the position he was put in was the cause of the trouble and therefore the reason the French army couldn't get out of it. But why was an aggressive assault-oriented commander suddenly so hesitant? Was the rumour true? The scandalous story that he spent the night before Quatre Bras in a looted farmhouse drinking an old priest's wine cellar and too hungover to fight? Why did he suddenly switch, though, from hesitancy late in the battle to an almost insane aggression with his cavalry? He was an experienced commander. He'd won battles before. So why did he do so badly? Ultimately, we will never know. Perhaps only Ney could know what was going on in his head. The stress of combat is beyond anything most people will experience. But for a fighting commander in the Napoleonic Wars, it was incredibly stressful. Command was at the front, under artillery fire, with thousands of men's lives directly in the hands of the commander. Ordering men forward into the face of muskets and cannons, watching them get shot, limbs blasted off, trampled by horses, closing up their ranks and marching onward. That added to the stress load on a commander immensely, and commanders were probably always wondering if they had done enough, been clever enough, or fast enough. Wellington, Napoleon, nay, all watched close friends of theirs die during the wars, and the guilt must have been incredible. Ultimately, though, nay and the French did what they did, and things turned out how they turned out. They would have to deal with the situation as it was and not as it might have been. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next time we will deal with Waterloo itself. But it is worth remembering that Quatre Bras had knock-on influences through the Victorian period and when I get to it shortly after Waterloo I will talk about some of the artwork from Lady Elizabeth Butler who painted some amazing pictures of Quatre Bras and Waterloo. Can't wait to see you next time. I've had a great time on Twitter chatting to people and I hope to hear from you all again soon. So take care, email me any questions or speak to me on Twitter. Uh, visit the website if you want to see any of the maps on Quatre Bras or Waterloo. The next episode, full main episode, should be on the 1st of September as always. Uh, I've also been doing a series of mini-sodes as you know, but I should just warn you that there won't be quite as many of those in August as unusually the podcast is taking its annual holiday by the beach, which means that I will be sitting in the sunshine reading a bit more and uh, behind the microphone a bit less. So I think it'll probably just be uh, the main episode next month, but we shall see. Anyway, great to hear from you all and take care. And if you want to help support the show, please do visit the website or better yet, leave a review on iTunes. Growing our community is a fantastic way to keep this podcast going and the reviews really help. <laughs>